Have you ever wanted a safe space where you can just exist? Where for a moment in time, you can be you with all the intricacies and parts of you that people don't always understand? Welcome to In the Deep, Stories That Shape Us. I'm your host, Zach Stafford, and each episode, we create a space to be you, all of you, in all your messy and complicated glory. Every story shares what it means to be a Black and Latinx man living with different hardships, whether it's the struggle of identity, discrimination, or health, and how they've managed to push forward despite the circumstance. We hope to get closer, even if just a little, to a road of healing and understanding. Hey everyone, welcome back. So today I want to talk about something that affects us all, I think. And that's the idea of how we see ourselves versus how others see us. How many times do people think they actually know our story, the real story, based on assumptions or a cheeky photo we've posted online or some water cooler talk we've had in passing? And how many times have others just gotten it all wrong? Ian Manuel's life is one of those stories that we think we've heard before. And chances are, you've probably heard his story narrated by countless journalists covering the events of one late summer day that completely changed the course of his life at 14. Or maybe you've heard about the prolific lawyer, Brian Stevenson, who helped him gain his liberty after 26 years of imprisonment. But Ian's story doesn't begin and end with a botched robbery attempt. It begins with his mother and brother, who deeply, deeply hurt him, and his grandmother, who did her best to give him a semblance of a normal childhood growing up in Central Park Village in Tampa, Florida. I grew up in a single-parent home, but my grandmother, Lyndall Johnson, spoiled me rotten. Because, you know, I felt like later on in life, I, in evaluating uh, why she spoiled me so much was the fact that she didn't take care of our own child, my dad, Jimmy. So she poured all the love that she didn't give my dad into me. I went to Catholic school for uh, first grade and second grade and half a third grade. I received awards in reading and writing. Uh, I was very artistic, meaning I could draw real good back then. But you know what they say when you don't practice something, it has a tendency to leave you. So I started getting in trouble later on around age 11, man, in the sixth grade, hanging with the wrong crowd. But before then, man, you know, I was I was brought up by my mother, Peggy Manuel, and she loved me the best she could. But we had a tumultuous relationship as well. When I was with my grandmother, there was nothing but love. When I was with my mother, there was love and anger. She was a Gemini, and I actually seen uh, both sides of that personality. Uh, you know, there was the good and gentle side, and then there was this angry, you know, as I talk about in my book, My Time Will Come, you know, my mother used to say things to me that I don't think any woman should ever say to a child, like, I found you on my doorstep, or why were you so dark-skinned? You know, it had a bad effect on me, man. I used to take bleach baths, to try to make my skin as light uh, complexion that my mother would care for and love more. You know, I love my dark skin now, but at the time, you know, the hurtful thing she said to me uh, made me not want to be dark. So I love spending time with my grandmother because I knew there was not going to be two sides of the coin with her. There was going to be one side, and that was strictly unconditional love. And, you know, grandmother would take me to... Tampa Bay Mall uh, when I was a kid and she used to work. She worked 26 years. She didn't know how to read and write. I remember her, uh, she'd get her retirement check from Morrison Cafeteria and uh, her social security check and she'd take them to the bank and I'd fear that we was going to leave the bank empty-handed at, at the mall 
because the teller would say, uh, Miss Johnson, can you just sign your name and I'll get you your money? And my grandmother would invariably always say, I don't know how to spell my name. And the teller would say, that's all right, Mrs. Johnson. Just sign a X. That's good enough. And I felt a huge relief because in my mind, I had all these fantasies and dreams that I was going to get this toy and that toy and these cookies. And uh, so when the teller said we were still going to be able to cash those checks, it was a huge relief to me. But growing up, and as I got older, I was like, wow, my grandmother couldn't even read and write. And that's what I do better than anything in the world. So it was something to think about. The love that Ian received from his grandmother was a complete 180 from the relationship he had with his mother. But there was one other person that really let him down, his brother. And through these experiences of high highs and low lows, he was marked by the outside world, one that should have protected him as, quote, a problem best managed inside the walls of an institution. So initially, my brother was somebody that I looked up to. He was a very popular guy in the city, in the neighborhood. He was like uh, the leader of the neighborhood. We didn't have gangs in Tampa, but we had uh, neighborhoods against neighborhoods that would fight each other. They called him Big John John. And so seeing how everyone respected my brother, I wanted to be like him. I wanted to grow up to have that type of uh, name recognition. You know, I love my brother for a long time, man. And, and he he was somebody that I, I looked up to at the time. My brother took advantage of me and sexually abused me when I was like six years old, when I was in kindergarten. And, uh, you know, I couldn't understand it, why he would do something like that. But it was something that, uh, that happened and he was uh, incarcerated for and something that we never really talked about. After he was released from jail, uh, we just, like, put it behind us. But... I can honestly say that uh, he broke a bond between us, man, because he used to protect me all the time. So I, I'll never be able to understand and comprehend why he would uh, do something like that to someone he loved and cared for. Uh, he's deceased now. But I think everyone was ashamed that it occurred. The person that did it, the mother that allowed it to happen under her roof, and the person that it happened to, you know? Uh, I think that was just a sense of shame. And so... To not deal with that pain, which I feel now as an adult, looking back on it, to not speak on it, really just buried the pain within. And no one ever got to totally heal from it, you know? And you you have to address things that happen, man. It's something that I feel like we left on the table that shouldn't have been left on the table. Ian is a young boy at this point, being emotionally and physically abused by the people and systems that are supposed to protect him. And then, in the mid-1980s, he has to face a new reality, his mom being diagnosed with HIV. Now, surprisingly, my mother was very vocal about being HIV positive. It wasn't something that she heard from the world, me, or anybody, uh, she started doing AIDS awareness work, taking me with her to pass out AIDS pamphlets, condoms throughout several neighborhoods in Tampa. She'd take me to the AIDS quilt when it came to Tampa and we signed our name. That AIDS quilt, I think, still floats around America somewhere. I probably could go find my name on it if I'm lucky. But uh, 
No, seriously, she was just very vocal and outspoken about being HIV positive and hammered that home in my brain to right now, to this day, I don't have unprotected sex. Even when I had a girlfriend, like I would have protected sex. And so it's, you know, that's something that I'm very, very afraid of contracting HIV because my mother died of that disease. I lost the person that I loved a lot to a horrible disease. And I swore to myself that I would do everything to protect myself from uh, ever contracting the virus. You know, I was a child. I couldn't envision my mother dying. My mother was still a healthy woman, like healthy in the sense that she was over 200-something pounds, like 220, 230 pounds. And I just couldn't comprehend my strong, vocal mother being torn apart by this terrible disease. She passed in uh, June, like a week before her birthday, actually, uh, June 8th, 1996. Yeah, I remember it uh, vividly. I was in solitary confinement, but uh, the sergeant came and got me and uh, took me to the the chapel, the prison chapel. And uh, on the walk to the chapel, the guy, uh, the sergeant asked me, uh, Ian, has anyone in your family been sick? And I was like, yeah, my mom. And you wouldn't believe the thoughts that you're going, the prayers that you're saying while you're walking to the chapel. You're like, God, anybody but my mom. Don't let it be my mom. Let it be my brother. Let it be anybody but my mom. That's This is the thoughts that's going through my head. And uh, I got to the chapel and uh, I, I just remember sitting down, black guy, afro, glasses. I sat across from him and he said, uh, your brother called. And so right then I knew it wasn't my brother. Like my worst fears was about to be realized. And he said, uh, your brother called and told me your mother had passed away. And uh, I'm sorry, I called the hospital um, to confirm and they have confirmed her death. And so I'm now I'm giving you your phone call to your family to talk to your brother about uh, what has just happened. And yeah, so I remember it as vivid as it happened yesterday. And so even talking about it now, it's like I'm visualized being back in that office this is almost like a therapy session because I haven't talked about this type of stuff in a while. Ian was 19 years old, sitting in solitary confinement when his mom passed. We've heard about the events that landed him in prison as a young boy countless times. Three older friends, the guys he considered his community, convinced him to head to the downtown area and commit a robbery. Ian says that the moments leading up to the robbery were like a game of hot potato. The boys passing off the gun to one another, indecisive about who would follow through with the robbery. Finally, his friend Mikey makes an executive decision. Give it to Ian. He's not scared. He'll do it, he says. They sat in the car, waiting for the next random person to walk by to make their move, and the person who walked by was Debbie Bagry and her friend. But as the young boys followed through with the plan to ask them for change for a $20 bill, something happened that made her scream and Ian shot in a panic. A few days later, at only 14 years old, he was advised to plead guilty by his lawyer. Ian's mother also pressured him to plead guilty. Promised a sentence of 15 years, he agreed, but instead he was sentenced as an adult to life in prison without the possibility of parole. First of all, I couldn't comprehend life without parole. I had just turned 14, two weeks prior. All this legal jargon at the time didn't mean nothing to me. A life sentence I thought was 20 years. Uh, I did not know life 
meant until your demise. I did not know life meant that I would not be released until the end of my life. Um, so the only thing going through my mind was I was going to prison and I was not going home. That's what I comprehended. That's the only thing that I could comprehend. I wrote my mother in prison, blaming her for being in prison with a life sentence. And I distinctively remember her writing me back saying, boy, don't try to lay that guilt trip on me. Had you not been out there robbing and shooting people, your ass wouldn't be in prison, quote, unquote. But I really took it to heart, you know, not trying to blame other people for my problems, but that I would not have had a life sentence had. And I probably would have, but, you know, who knows? I was 13. Maybe the jury would have had some leniency on me, you know? I don't know, but I just felt that my mom misled me, man, and she she failed as a mother to protect me from the system. I just don't know how you move past that. Did you ever move past it with her before she'd passed? Uh, to be honest, I don't think I ever did. I don't think I ever did because I felt like she let me down at a, one of the most vulnerable times in my life. So to recap, Ian is 14, a literal child sitting in solitary confinement, being raised by correctional officers and a system that failed to protect him. But even through these lonely moments, his imagination kept him going and sparked a new love for an unexpected interest. Poetry. Confinement comes the first day that I entered uh, in prison, but I was only for three weeks. I was placed in solitary confinement the first day I went to prison based on the fact that I was 14. But that was only for three weeks at the reception center. After that, I was transferred to an adult prison where I was placed in general population and given all the privileges, uh, if you can call them that, as an adult prisoner. And uh, I rebelled because I wasn't an adult. And the officers would yell at me. I would yell back. I would do typical teenage behavior stuff. Like, I would be in unauthorized areas. What do kids do when they're young? They're in places they're not supposed to be. The officers would curse at me. I would curse back. I would get in fights. I'd uh, walk in the grass when I was supposed to walk on the sidewalk. And all of that was... I would get write-ups. And if you get enough write-ups, they label you a management problem, unable to be controlled in the general population. So I was placed in long-term solitary confinement in November 1992. And it was a place I would stay until November 2010. So for 18 consecutive years, I was in solitary confinement. You were a kid growing up in solitary confinement by yourself. What was going through your head during this time? Were you reading? How were you taking care of yourself? What were the days like? Uh, they were boring. It was filled with monotony. You know, I had to find my way, man. I was growing up in prison, but not only was I growing up in prison, I was growing up inside of a cell the size of a walk-in closet or freight elevator, you know? So it was difficult, man. I'm not going to lie. I started out reading urban novels, Donald Goins, Iceberg Slim. And then, you know, over the years, my mentality grew. You know, I started reading Fountainhead by Ann Rand or The Seed of the Soul by Gary Zukav, The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle, uh, The Autobiography of Malcolm X. Uh, I read thousands of books in solitary. But the thing that changed my life, Albert Einstein says that imagination is more important than knowledge. And it was my imagination that sustained me. 
thank God for my childlike imagination. Someone sent me Tupac Shakur's book, The Rose That Grew From Concrete. And I fell in love with the poetry. And I started rewriting Tupac poems and sharing them with my fellow prisoners. And then the prisoners loved it so much, they started paying me to write their girlfriends and their wives' poetry. And next thing you know, man, I, I felt alive again. I felt something of value to, ha- to offer the world. I mean, you don't know what it's like. The first poem that I wrote that really got some recognition was a poem called Genie in the Bottle. And it's about solitary confinement. And I'd love to share it with you right now. I would love that. Thank you. I'd love it. It says, I'm the genie in the bottle. The world has forgot. They put me in this abyss and closed up the top. I was a little boy when they did what they did. But time continued to tick and I'm no longer a kid. My mother is dead, and so is my father. I've been abandoned by family while trapped in this bottle. But I hold on the hope that someone will open the top, answer my prayers, and help me out. Sometimes people pick up the bottle and put their eye to the hole. But instead of compassion, acting different and cold, I suffer sensory deprivation a lost sense of direction. There's no mirror in this bottle for me to see my reflection. They say being lonely and alone are two different definitions, but it's only me in this bottle, so I fit both descriptions. What I need is a friend, someone to extend a hand. It could be as simple as picking up a pen Someone who cares, accepts me for who I am. My magnetic personality and my baggage from the past. Someone who helps heal the sorrow. will work on building our tomorrows. Someone who refuses to leave me to die in this bottle. It allowed me to reclaim my sense of freedom. Listen, God gives each and every one of us a gift. My gift just happens to be the ability to compose words in ways that move people. People ask me, how did you survive, man? You know, not only did I survive, I survived with my sanity, my talent, and my humanity intact. And that was a tall order to do. But I will say, despite all of that, I would have died in prison had it not been for Brian Stevenson and the Equal Justice Initiative taking my case in 2006 and eventually appealing to the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn all juvenile life sentences that led to my release in 2016. So despite the freedom that I felt in writing, my physical freedom would have never came had it not been for God sending me the best lawyer in in America. When you found out these cases were being appealed and that you had won, what was that day? Where were you? What was going on in your head? I I was listening to a small AM, FM, transistor radio in solitary confinement that I shouldn't have had that someone had smuggled to me. And I was listening to NPR. And um, it came on like at the top of the hour, like one o'clock. And they said, and this U.S. Supreme Court in a 5-4 decision has overturned all life sentences for juveniles if they have not committed a non-homicide crime. And they went on to the next story, and I had to wait 30 agonizing minutes to hear this again. 
And when I listened to it again, they said a 6-3 decision, but it was still in my favor. And I just screamed, man. I just screamed loud. I'm like, it's over. It's over. I just remember screaming, it's over. And I thought it was, but it wasn't. Because when I went back to court in 2010, thinking I was going to be released, because my sentence was deemed cruel and unusual punishment and unconstitutional, the state of Florida said, Your Honor, we are appealing the U.S. Supreme Court decision. And everyone in the courtroom was stunned because they was like, there's nothing to appeal. This came from the highest court in the, in the land. And they said, trying to catch 22, yes, Your Honor, but the U.S. Supreme Court said this is for juveniles who committed non-homicide offenses. Mr. Manuel committed attempted homicide, which falls under the homicide statute. So we don't believe that this law should apply to him. So they sent me back to prison, and they appealed to the Florida Supreme Court, who refused to hear their appeal. They appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, who denied search word, meaning they denied their appeal as well. And I went back to court in 2011 thinking I was going home, but I didn't. I got back, and the judge said something before he went in this chambers to deliberate to let me know I wasn't going home that day. He said, there was a statement made about rehabilitation. However, when Mr. Manuel's crime happened, the legislative intent was to punish, not rehabilitate. And he went in his chambers to deliberate and he came back out and he voided my life sentences. And in place of my life sentences, he sentenced me to 65 years in prison. I went back to prison and I wrote this poem called My Time Will Come. The poem says, I promise you, the brunt of my oppression has a purpose. And this same person that you persecute will one day be worshipped. Though I stand before you bare-chested and shirtless, with my soul and emotions naked, just wanting to be nurtured. Yeah, despite the desperation, desertion, and hurting, my time gonna come. Though I composed this poem not knowing if I'll ever be able to perform it in an auditorium, I do it with the faith of a poet that believes he was born to do it like an acorn caught up in a storm flung from the branch where it was born. You can only hold me back for so long. My time gonna come. Despite the difficulties and disappointments, my determination remains undaunted. Though the waters of my tomorrows are deep and uncharted, the buoyance of my character will float unwavering towards them. Like a song written, yet unrecorded, my time gonna come. Though you wrapped me in chains and sprayed me with chemical flames and did all of the things you did to add to my pain, my circumstances will change. I believe this with the depths of my being that as long as this world continues to spin, it cannot end till it's been enjoyed by Ian. Remember this day, because things won't always be this way. My time gonna come. My time gonna come against all conceivable odds. My time gonna come. And five years later, I was released. Wow. Did you think about that poem when you found out you were being released? I definitely did. And that's why it's the title of my book, My Time Will Come. 
In the traditional sense, we often find ourselves starting a process of forgiving with others. But Ian had to approach forgiveness from within and slowly start expanding to those who he had wronged and those that had wronged him. Even before the overturn of his life sentence, he thought a lot about forgiveness, especially when it came to his victim who survived the robbery. I called Debbie when I was 14 years old. My lawyer at the time had sent me all of my legal documents, and I saw in the police report Debbie's address and phone number, and I just felt compelled to reach out to her. My grandmother didn't raise me to hurt people. That's not who I am as a person. And so I called Debbie, collect. You know, back then you could just press zero and get a live operator. I don't even know if that still works these days, right? But uh, I called Debbie. She accepted the call. She said, can you ask him his last name? And I said, yes, uh, Manuel. And she said with a tentative voice, yes, I accept. And I don't remember a lot about that first phone call except I said, I'd like to wish you and your family a Merry Christmas and to apologize for shooting you in the face. And then Debbie asked me a question that no 14-year-old should ever have to answer. She said, Ian, why did you shoot me? And I said, Debbie, it all happened so fast. It was a mistake. And we talked. The 15-minute phone call ended. I asked, could I call back? She said, yes. And uh, all I remember about the second phone call was asking, could I write her? And she said, yes. And that's how our correspondence started. And we eventually developed a friendship. And I believe every human being has these desires to do things, impulses to act. And yet we push these ideas to these feelings down. Like, it'll never work. It's a crazy idea. And I have found in my 44 years of existence that every time... I've listened to that call of my heart and not pushed it aside. It has led to some extraordinary things, whether that was calling Debbie at 14, whether that was writing uh, U.S. Senator Bill Nelson when I was in solitary confinement. And I didn't know it at the time because I was 14, but I know it now as an older spiritual person that that's what I, I was doing, man. I was following my heart and not pushing the idea down. Even though it was a crazy idea, call the lady you shot and, and have a conversation with her. Like, most people is gonna, gonna report you to the authorities, first of all, and gonna run far away from you. But it worked. She accepted the call and, you know, we became friends and I have a phone number right now. I can text her or call her right now to this day. Sometimes people get it wrong about punishment. You know, when I was in prison, every time they would execute somebody at the, in the electric chair or the gurney at Florida State Prison, I would turn on NPR the next morning and I would listen to the family members say, this is what my uncle, my brother, my dad, my mother would have wanted. Justice has been served. But by Debbie surviving, not dying, no one could tell that story for her. Only she could come forth and say what she wanted. And she wanted me out of prison, right? That was forgiveness, man. It, it was a process. She didn't forgive me instantly. It was a growth process. It was her seeing me, my true self, that I wasn't a bad person, that I wasn't trying to intentionally kill her, you know? And I'm just thankful that she survived and was 
able to tell her own story and Stella having an angry husband say, this is what my wife would have wanted, Ian to die in prison, you know? I'm showing the world, first of all, that I deserve a second chance. And I'm also a manifestation that dreams actually do come true. Because getting out wasn't good enough for me. I didn't want to just get out. I didn't want to just survive. I wanted to thrive. I used to dive within the depths of my imagination. I'm going to be this big superstar rapper when I get out. going to have a movie. I'm going to do a book. And I have a book. I signed a movie deal. And there's so much more that I'm doing with my life that shows that the system, if it could, just throws people away. And it is my belief that there's thousands of more Ian's in prison that deserve a second chance. And by me thriving out here, I, I mean, I get emails and letters from prisoners all the time saying, Ian, you got to make it, man. You give us hope. You show us that this is possible, man. Make it, man. And so I'm inspired by the people I left behind. And I just try to keep it real through my authenticity by being myself. But I'm a manifestation that dreams come true, man. So follow your dreams, stick to them, and believe in yourself no matter what. Ian brings us an idea that's so special and yet so simple that our circumstances do not have to define our ability to lose touch with what makes us human. And it's the ability to continue dreaming, even in the most desolate of places, or forgiving those that have wronged us, those we have wronged, or even forgive ourselves for past mistakes that keeps us on track to internal peace and healing. This has been In the Deep, Stories That Shape Us. Find this episode and others on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to share, rate, and review if you enjoyed this conversation. This show is produced by Yvonne Sheehan and mastered by James Foster. Our show researcher is Jordan Raggio, and our writer is Yvette Lopez. A special shout out to our guest, Ian Manuel. I'm your host, Zach Stafford. Zach Stafford.